Movies by Minutes, project number five. It's Silverado this time. That's no jive. By Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the show. Let's settle up now, kids, because here we go. Howdy, and welcome back to another episode of the Silverado Minute podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes host examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed Western Silverado, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts this week, Jim O'Kane, uh, the executive producer of this uh, wonderful show. Uh, I'm also a podcaster on the Apollo 13 Minute, the Rocketeer Minute, and uh, a bunch of other minutes. Oh, and that that's me. That's you. And that, well, I'm Brett Stillo, minute by, movie by minute podcaster and, and lovable rogue, and I'm very confused, Jim. The last thing I remember was Josh Horowitz and I were were leaving for Turley with this feeling we would never quite get there. We would always depart and, you know, there would be this Rod Serling-like cycle of uh, we would see Kevin uh, uh, Payton kiss his horse and then we'd talk to Cobb and then we would leave for Turley and we would just be in that strange, strange loop. So that's that's the last thing I remember. Yeah, well, I've had to lift you up from the time stream, uh, a la <laughs> Back to the Future. So now we're we're here in Hill Valley. Oh, no, wait, we're in Silverado. Not, not we're in Silverado. We are in Silverado. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, here we are with uh, the Tannins. No, not the Tannins. These are, this would be uh, Cobb and company. Uh, okay. In the uh, in the Midnight Star Bar, uh, actually, I should, where we're at is uh, we have as as we've been as people have been listening to this every week, we've had different hosts and things, and unfortunately, the host schedule for this week uh, had to drop out rather suddenly. So we're here uh, thanks to the able work of Mr. Stillo. Uh, uh, we were here pitch hitting for uh, from some missing comrades, but uh, but we'll have we'll get back on the next uh, schedule by the end of the week. And in the meantime, we can have some scintillating conversations about this wonderful bar scene that, uh, that we're immersed in here. A, a total treat. I'm yes. looking forward to it. Me too. Um, wow. Well, uh, I guess let's, let's go over this minute. Uh, we are yeah. minute 81. Uh, we are getting to uh, the end of Payton's story about, uh, about where's the dog. And uh, Payton explains that the, uh, the dog, uh, he did get locked up, but uh, fortunately the dog sprung him from jail. <laughs> And uh, and we're ending with uh, Payton getting very defensive about uh, Stella's future at the uh, Midnight Star Saloon. So lots of activity. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start off by being controversial. Ooh. Yeah, I'm gonna play the devil's advocate here because hmm. we love Payton, we love the performance, but you know, and this is the problem I think when. I, you know, I've seen this movie maybe seven times at least. I'll bet you you've seen it more. You've maybe lost count. Uh, you know, and sometimes you, you know, when you repeat viewing, sometimes something goes by and you're fine with it. Something, then you see it another time, another perspective and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And I feel like this time watching this scene and, um, you know, Payton's reaction, it's, it, it's a little too self-referential to me. It's maybe a little too much irony it's a funny line but is it uh it's is it a little too much does he does he break character for the sake of the joke would it would a 19th century uh adventurer you know say would that would that kind of level of humor be there i don't know yeah it's it it was it was looking like he was gonna (sighs) glance over in the corner and the fellow would uh, hit the snare drum and the cymbal at the end but uh, yeah 
Yeah, a little a little uh, bit of the Catskills there in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of Silverado. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's still it, it's you know it's forgivable. I think I think in this in this particular scene, it's something that we've we've grown over the past hour and twenty minutes. We've grown to like Peyton, so we could uh, we could let him be a little deprecate. Yeah, and it's literally a shaggy dog story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I have to point out one of the things that just from a practical standpoint in this film, uh, they must have gone through a lot of Apple boxes on this particular shoot because we're looking at we're looking at three guys there. And um, I know uh, Kevin Klein is six foot two and uh, uh, Brian Dennehy was six foot three. Jeff Goldblum, six, four. And uh, Linda Hunt is uh, four foot eight. So even, I mean, even at her best, it's standing tippy toe. I don't think she'd be able to be a head shorter than uh, than Brian Dennehy, who's right there in the in the foreground. Uh, would would they good, ever good go shooting. the other direction? Would they just have ask Brian and Kevin uh, and Jeff to just to just scrunch down, or maybe just take your shoes off, guys? I think yeah. I guess we still with Linda Hunt. Yeah, yeah four I, foot eight. Yeah, I think we're I think we're gonna have to put her. She's probably standing on uh, on a stack of boxes. I would think she's she's way up in the air just to get just to get to sh- you know her nose is at Brian Dennehy's shoulder height, so that's definitely lifting her at least a foot and a half. I would say. Um, but uh, the other thing I noticed, I mean, considering it's the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties or so, they this is one of the most well lit saloons uh, of that time period. I can't imagine how much uh, whale oil they were using in those uh, those big lamps hanging off the ceiling. Oh, it's it's like a Frederick Remington painting. Yes, <laughs> and uh, I don't know if, if in any of your episodes you you touted the the great John Bailey. Um, this this sequence in the bar here. I could, I, and a quick aside, do you know uh, was this you know the interior was was do you know if this uh, the uh, this was a uh, uh, you know just a soundstage or were they you know, was it a bar inside and exterior at the from, location? From what I under, from what I understand, there was um, most of a set that, that had wild walls that was built on site. Um, this, you know, again, we'll see it later on that this is built on the corner. I don't know if they have a multi, if they if they have multiple sets, but I think this was actually constructed out there at the ranch, and they had wild walls to put in. Um, you know, all the all this uh, gear. They, they could uh, they could move in, but when you think about how much light was required, even even with modern fast films, that is an enormous stage to uh, to light. So there must have been just racks and racks up in the rafters of of this area that they built, and uh, and just trying to light, uh, you know, the uh, uh, with with any kind of photography, the inverse square law applies that you have to have if you're twice as far away, it has to be four times as bright to have the same level of uh, of illumination, so the back wall there, that that entrance that we see over Brandon he's shoulder where he had he had shot uh, Kelly, uh, that's got to be lit with lots and lots of old tungsten uh, lamps. Um, but yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if there was a, if there was yet another soundstage that they built um, that might be easier to do uh, than uh, up you know than doing it up there in uh, in New Mexico. But they had the whole cast there, so. Uh, it may have been something that they could they could construct and build. I mean, yeah. as long as you're building a town, you might as well build a stage to do the main scenes. Yeah, and I mean, regardless, it's still, as you said, you know, hundreds and hundreds of 
intricately, intricately, intricately placed lights uh, to get that sense of, you know, like late afternoon, early evening, seeping through the boards. Uh, just, you know, it's beautifully lit. Um, yeah, it looks like maybe on set they had like 10 million candles. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is, you know, it's just so, I wouldn't say typical, but, you know, um, again, John Bailey and, you know, his contemporaries in the area, Caleb Deschanel and uh, the great Conrad Hall. It's it's a very natural yet unnatural <laughs> you know they were they those guys in this era of filmmaking were, were going for this like they want i'm sure they wanted it to look like yeah it's just light coming through a dirty window when it was you know everything but that yeah more of a, it's a sepia tone uh same thing with the uh with the costumes i i have the same problem with this scene with the the, the costumes that they're wearing uh, that I did with the uh, Ark of the Covenant uh, ex uh, expository scene in Raiders. That the uh, it's the 1880s, and I know this is the movie 1880s, not the real 1880s. But the suits that the three gentlemen are wearing look like they were cut down 1980s uh, botany, botany 500s. I mean, it just look at that that beautiful uh, the uh, the shoulder work and. I do. I do a little bit of sewing myself, and I, I mean, this is like very fine tailoring that I don't think you'd find in the dusty out, you know, west that would fit in a Conestoga wagon, let alone a stagecoach. It's just a little bit too well tailored for me to be the rough and tumble west. But you know, again, it's Hollywood, it's movies, and it's okay to look like that, especially back in the mid '80s. Yeah, it's it's funny that you brought up Raiders because again, having seen this many many times and this scene, something about watching it this time. Maybe, maybe just, you know, being a little more aware of Lawrence Kasdan and his work. Uh, this did remind me a little tiny bit of uh, Indy and Belloc in Cairo. Yes, uh, right down to the shot glasses. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, slightly different composition. Um, but again, you know, that was a scene that, that looked very natural and yeah. very, you know, well. It, but yeah, it's something, it's something here. Um yeah, I wanted to, you know, maybe maybe it's maybe it's the tension between the two characters. And, you know, don't you just love the, uh, you know, friendly enemies conversation? Yes. Yeah, it's all they they've had so much and, and the pasts that are coming up. I mean, Jeff Goldblum is basically there so that they can relate all these experiences. Um, uh, Linda Hunt, Stella is, is being the damsel in distress to be. And uh, and we're, we're getting all those all those shotguns, uh, you know, the Chekhov shotguns down off the wall as <laughs> as in this in this scene, we do get a scene where Cobb gives uh, Payton his first week's uh, payday. And he says, I took out the thirteen dollars, which reminds him of the debt that Payton owes for just, you know, not only for you know buying him a new pair of clothes, set, set of clothes, but also giving him a job and giving him you know some means of of survival out here in the wild west um and just waving that in front of them and then tempting him with you know here's more that you can have if you'll do certain things for me um so you know like by suddenly threatening him with stella uh and you know C cobb was kind of reminded by uh payton telling you know getting the dog story out of the way uh Cobb is now being reminded that Payton's soft spot is for small, cuddly things that uh, can't defend themselves. And, uh, you know, he's realizing the kind of uh, uh, 
ammunition he now has against Payton yet again because he no longer owes him thirteen dollars, and uh, you know the balance is the balance has been set, but now he's got a new uh, bit of leverage he can he can hold over Payton's head. Uh, fascinating character. I, I love I love villains. Any any movie where you're watching, trying to figure out what the villain is uh, is up to or how he how he works his way. I mean, we see that with. Um, I mean, I, I, in, in terms of favorite villains, I keep my I keep going back to Hitchcock and thinking of Uncle Charlie in Shadow of a Doubt. Where, mm. uh, he gently warns his uh, his niece uh, not to bring up the fact that he may or may not be a murderer, and uh, and holds holds the entire family against her with an unseen with, with an unmentioned threat. Um, but uh, this is the same kind of leverage thing that, that Kazdin is excellent at. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I'm just reminded that, you know, I think Dennehy is like a lot of actors would do. He's not playing him as a villain. Yeah. Uh, Cobb sees himself as, yeah, as just a businessman. And, you know, he, uh, he is the hero of his own story. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I, I have never read, or you know, seen any archival interviews, you know, Brian Dennehy on this, but he he seemed to be reveling in this character, and you know, enjoying playing cowboy, and just you know, there's there seems to be a there was a decision here. Okay, if I'm if I'm going to be the black hat in this, uh, I'm just going to have fun with it, and um, and it definitely works, you know. Uh, here with Kevin Klein because you know it's, it's it's in a sense it's two guys playing cowboy, but never uh, never going arch with it, keeping yeah. it. You know they're they're they they could these two guys could very easily be wearing um, you know modern New York City police yeah. <laughs> uniforms yeah. or something and you know but uh, yeah Den Denny he seems to sort of be having a ball like. You know, I, I don't have to be the the really rotten sheriff from uh, Rambo. I can be more of a you know. I he is a lovable rogue. Yeah, yeah. I think like Har Harvey Keitel in Copland. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just it's like you understand he knows the real rules of the game, and uh, and this other fellow who he wants to do good, but he keeps getting drawn into the he, he keeps getting drawn in with the bad guys, just just winding up in bad co company constantly, and not very strong. Uh, because he's always working from a, a side of weakness. Um, his kindness is his failing, but it turns out, and well, we won't get further on, but his <laughs> kindness is a strength and a weakness. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't mean to name drop, but one of the one of the people I've, I've interviewed about playing villains in the past was Susan Sarandon. She was in, um, if you've ever seen the Disney movie Enchanted, she played the uh, evil stepmother of uh, Amy Adams, and it was a fairy tale story. Uh, but uh, I had asked her. I said, "You know, usually you're the you're the good guy. You're the uh, you're the protagonist of many movies." Um, I, I I asked her, "What you know? Is it okay to play the villain? How does that? How do?" She goes, "I love." I lo she goes, "They never let me be a villain. So like when I get to be the bad guy in this one, it's a lot of fun." So I, I I'm sure Dennehy was just, uh, you know, he 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 was completely uh, doing laps around the other uh, the other folks with just how much he was enjoying. Being the uh, not quite cackle. Well, he does cackle a bit, cackling. You know, uh, villain um, doesn't get to tie anybody to the railroad tracks, but pretty close <laughs> in this thing. 
and uh, just uh, uh, just seeing him in this in this minute, you know, uh, he he can he, he's really chewing the scenery with this whole thing. Just beautiful. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. Um, I you know it, it's there's there's so much there's so much stuff being set up here. <laughs> Even Cobb says, "I told you this was a sweet setup," and it's it, it's it's I I I wonder. You know, I mean, this is looking through the lens of history, but this this is very trope filled western. This is bad. This is a very tropey western, and having the uh, the bad sheriff in town and things, uh, it, it could be a cliche. But I don't feel when I'm watching the movie, it doesn't feel like a cliche. Even though you know we're gonna have a shootout at the end, we're gonna we've got the bad guys rolling into town. There's cattle rustling. There's all kind. You know. I, it still feels new when Kasdan does this, and I think he knows that it's not a, uh, a, a that the audience watching this is not going to uh, see it as a cliche. Mostly because I think most people hadn't seen westerns. Um, the the audience, the young audience that was going to it, hadn't been exposed to the western like like this was. Yeah, and, and again it. The kind of Western this is, in a, in a way, this is like a throwback to a you know a 1939, 1940 Western. Yeah. Uh, you know, there there are moments in this movie it reminds me of uh, an old favorite of mine, Dodge City, with Errol Flynn, which yeah. is very much you know a Technicolor, and uh, yeah, this is you know this is a reinvention of the Western, if you will, or a reboot, a reboot of the Western, which. Uh, I'm sure we've been talking about in our mutual respective episodes, but here's a question for you because I'm not exactly sure because yeah, this is a nice beat. It's, it's a nice, uh, you know, uh, thing, you know, thing, things are sort of, you know, being brought up. Are, are we close? Is this close to the end of the second act or are we into the beginning of the third act of this? Mm, I would think, we're closing the second act. We're not quite there. We have to get to, we, uh, well, later on this week, we're going to get into a precipitating event for the third act, which is where, um, Payton, well, he's, he's setting it up here. I mean, there's a, there's a big exp expository scene here where, uh, Cobb is drinking the good stuff and mm -hmm. telling him that, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, this is a sweet setup and, uh, he's preparing, to lay lay all of his cards on the table about what Payton needs to do and what not to do. So Payton has to decide between good and evil. And uh, unfortunately for Payton, Payton tipped his hand about what he considers valuable, and that the valuable thing is Stella. So, um, but we'll yeah you know, we'll get into that uh, later on in this week as uh, as things develop. But yeah, this is definitely I would say this is the expository scene that will begin to end the uh, the second act. Um, but yeah, very, very classic exposition, complication, resolution uh, style of, of the script. Very, very traditional, but uh, still manages to um, make it, you know, sit on the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen next. I, I, I would like to point out, last year we did um, uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, which is also <laughs> so many scenes are set in a bar. Um, but the, uh, the framing of this particular scene as we get toward the end uh usually when you're doing when we were watching a the two shot where um uh, back when frederick march 
and uh, Dana Andrews were discussing Frederick March's daughter and what uh, Dana Andrews, uh, oh Fred Derry, the character Fred Derry was uh, was going to decide to do about his uh, uh, his troubled marriage. Uh, the shot was head on. I mean, it was we were the, the uh, Andrews was on the left side, uh, and uh, Frederick March was on the right side, and it was very flat, very. Um, it, it was it was shot very back and forth one two one two. We have the same uh, shot reverse shot here, but I I think that uh, the important thing in this is the amount of screen space that uh, Brian Dennehy gets versus Kevin Klein. Mm. Dennehy's getting like two thirds of the screen, so he's obviously in a position of power, and the light is on him. Uh, Kevin Klein is in shadow, uh, mostly in darkness. And even when they do the reverse shot, uh, Dennehy's bulk just really fills up his half of the screen. Um, it's I think it's, it's it's a great representation of how much power Cobb has over Payton and how weak Cobb is in being able to uh, stand against it. Um, I just I thought that was very clever compositing of uh, the, the composition here is just uh, astonishing how uh, how much you know visual information is being presented um but just go- gorgeous stuff you know I, I, <laughs> I, this is my favorite part of uh, of movies my minutes is just being able to look at how they're telling the story visually uh not just not just in the script but what what information you're getting just from the screen exactly exactly that's why you know, I, I never tire of talking about movies because you can go, uh, you know, four dimensionally, you know, we can talk yeah, about, yeah. you know, yeah, we can talk about the composition and, you know, the dialogue because there's, there's, there are so many elements here, the costumes, the lighting, um, it's, uh, it is trans dimensional. I don't know, or there's, yeah. a, if there's a better or worse word, but yeah, we could just, um, and again, with the, going back to the lighting, it's, it, it could be a, this could be a still photograph or a, a, a painting yet, the, yeah. you know, the characters talk and, um, yeah. And, you know, you, you know, you make me wonder again, you know, John Bailey, uh, you know, and the whole limit, you know, lineage of American cinematographers and, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we could find some really clear line you know, in from Bailey's career back to Greg Toland, you know, you know, yeah, when you study and it's, you know, it's the whole, you know, mentoring and, you know, and it's, you see that real direct, you know, oh, I studied from him. I studied from him. And it was like, oh, okay. We're, we're probably not too far removed from a movie like best years of our lives. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is a what, 40, 40 years. I mean, it's just a, it's a stone's throw. There were people that may have worked in both and, and like you said, the, the, the mentoring and as you know, from the forties, well, even from the, from the talkies in the twenties to the forties, as that language of film developed, uh, they could go into increasing shorthand. So we already know, we already know the language of what's on the screen. We may not realize we know it, but as we've seen other films with similar, uh, cinematic language this is conveying to us almost just as much as the script and the dialogue is is telling us wow well we've we've got a we've got a lot to cover yeah in the next in the next bunch but why don't we uh why don't we put a put a pin on this one we can come back tomorrow and chat a little bit more about this 
Um, folks, for uh, for people listening in, you can find, of course, you know, wherever you found this, you can probably find lots more episodes of this. But we just want to let you know you can find uh, the Silverado podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, SilveradoMinute.com. Uh, social media, if you'd like to chat with us, uh, we've got a pretty active uh, conversation going on over at the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listeners Saloon over on Facebook. Also on Twitter, love to hear from you. Uh, Twitter at Silverado MXM, which stands for Movies by Minutes, the group that Britt and I are, and as many previous hosts are, uh, a part of. Uh, but please join us uh, next time here on uh, on, the, on the Silverado Minute, and we will chat some more about Cobb and Payton, and uh, I guess this is uh, HR relationships, but uh, we will see you here tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we will see you here tomorrow on the Silverado Minute. And in, in the meantime, yee-haw! yee-haw!